Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. We are coming to you a little bit later than we normally do for our Monday episode because uh, someone who will not be named forgot their microphone on the Chicago trip. To that person I would just like to say, just come forward, we promise we won't be mad. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point, we just we just need to know the answer because it's it's a little bit ridiculous uh, that this has dragged on this long. I do find it interesting though that the on the day we're trying to solve a mystery like this, uh, Prashant isn't even here and he's been replaced by some deep voiced cowboy, uh, presumably from the West. And I and you know I don't know where this West Texan Red Wings commentator has has emerged from. It, it, I do find it pretty sketchy. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is me hopped up on cough and cold medicine after five days of battling whatever the heck it is that's going around right now in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So, uh, you know, this is a very interesting voice that you guys are going to get today. I will tell you it is a couple octaves lower than what it was the last few days. So I think that might be music to some people's ears. Uh, and maybe we can just go with the rich timber that's happening right now. That's right. Well, we'll roll with it, and um, who knows? Maybe maybe the people will like it even better, and we'll have to keep you sick or hopped up on cold medicine uh, just for the brand. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm totally committed to the brand here, Max. I mean, this is the Michael Jordan flu game, hoping it doesn't turn into the Jimmy Howard really bad illness game. So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go with it. Feel free to let me know if it's heading that direction, and we, we can <laughs> very easily pause things. Uh, but before before it goes there. We should talk about the Red Wings uh, game last night. They lose 4-2 to Chicago Blackhawks after well, I thought it was a pretty solid first period. Uh, Philip Zadina scores, I think, his, probably his, his nicest goal of the season so far. Uh, Luke Lindenning gets one. The Red Wings look like they are on the way to making the mom's trip uh, a happy ending. But, alas, the Red Wings game happened, and they gave up four straight and lost 4-2. Yeah, I mean, it was a really good start from the Red Wings. And, you know, like you mentioned, we've been waiting for Zadina to really score a goal like this where he just absolutely picks a corner, snipes it, uh, and that's exactly what that was. And it, it was just a heck of a shot. Um, there's not a whole lot of guys in the NHL right now that can score that goal. And so that was obviously very exciting. And I thought the Wings carried play for, you know, the better part of the first 20 to 25 minutes. But... You know, as we've become accustomed to, this Red Wings team seems to have an aversion to playing second periods the same way they play the first periods. Uh, and actually, over the final 10 minutes of the second period, looking at the different game charts, I don't think the Red Wings recorded a single shot attempt. Not even a shot on goal, like a shot attempt. This was a straight flat line for about 10 minutes. Um, and the game really got away from them at that point, and they weren't able to really muster them up a, uh, a substantial effort in the third period. Yeah, it got away. You could tell Jeff Blash was pretty frustrated with how, especially the second period, went yesterday. That's really been a problem period for them this season. I'm not sure what you could possibly attribute that to, other than like there's not there shouldn't be anything markedly different about a second period, other than that it's not the start and it's not the end. Um, I don't know if that's something where you know naturally. The, the the fire is lit more at the starts and ends of games or what and maybe the that's maybe maybe the second period is where talent discrepancies could show but I think even then you're you're kind of grasping at straws looking for an explanation to it yeah I, I completely agree because really fundamentally the only thing that's different about the second period is there's a long change and so I guess theoretically if you've got a, a team that's maybe 
not comfortable with certain executions of line changes in the right scenarios and maybe they're not picking the right times. Maybe you get burned on a handful of odd man rushes, but I think the problem goes well beyond that. And, you know, hockey, I think, is a little unlike the other sports where I don't know you could necessarily attribute this to in-game adjustments. It's not like the wings come out real strong in the first and there's a significant coaching adjustment or a change in the game plan that's happening in that first intermission that the players are then coming out and executing for the opposition team like you may see in basketball where they change a defensive scheme or you know in the NFL they're going to change the way they uh, cover certain players or blitz the quarterback. I don't think you have the same concept in hockey and so it's just it's really hard to explain why the wings struggle so much in the second period. It is and I don't I don't know that it's something that you can really I mean I'm sure you can quantify the how bad it's been but I don't know if there's a way to analytically even kind of trace the issue because it'll probably just come up everything is worse you know what I mean like I'm sure the I'm sure the shots there is worse I'm sure the shot quality is worse but in terms of finding an actual origin or something actionable um, it it's probably going to stay a mystery yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. I don't know that you're going to find anything for the Wings to fundamentally do different, but it's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, in the second period alone, the Wings have a minus 36 goal differential. That is worse than any hockey team right now. It, it, when you use all their, all their periods, not just the second period, like a minus 36 goal differential in a single period, um, right now. And that's just, it's, it's, uh, absolutely mind blowing until you realize the wings are also a minus twenty nine in the third period, um, <laughs> and that's also the other worst period for you know the, them to deal with. But we can ignore that. Their first periods are not too bad. They're minus six. It's just the second and third where the game really gets away from them. But having a minus thirty six and a minus twenty nine goal differential in two separate periods for the same team, that's kind of the story of the season right now. Is they're they're starting okay, but they're just not able to sustain that over the course of sixty minutes. I don't know that I was prepared. <laughs> like there's not that many more stats at this point that can really throw you with it. Like once you hear the normal goal differential and all that stuff, like it's it's pretty hard to find a stat that's really gonna gonna get you. But like there's there's only one team in the league that has a full season goal differential of worse than minus 29 and the Red Wings have uh, other than the Red Wings I mean and the Red Wings have two periods of that like yeah, individual periods exactly like we're just talking about 20 minute segments one third of the game if you only took one third of the game it would still be this bad um and that's that's hard to fathom. I mean, even New Jersey, their worst period's the third period, and they're only at minus 23. And so the Wings have two periods far worse than that right now. And so it's just – it's really tough to wrap your head around. It's hard to answer why. I don't know that there's anything that you can point to and say this is an actionable item for the team to change. I just think it's simply – you know, uh, the talent discrepancy eventually bores out over the course of a game, and, and that's how you're seeing it show up. Anything stand out to you about the game other than that? I mean, is there, is there, I mean, I'm sure Zadina's play a little bit, but anything really jump out at you? No, I mean, again, you're you're impressed at the times when the Wings are able to carry the play. You know, the first 10 to 15 minutes, it looked a little bit like vintage Red Wings. It, it, they were really controlling the play, and that was exciting. And I think Philip Zadina's been a big part of that. I think right now you can make the case that since he's been called up, he's one of the two or three best players on the team. Uh, I pointed this out on Twitter uh, during the game that since his call-up, he's second on the team in points with 10. 
that's tied with Tyler Bertuzzi, and he's just a point behind Larkin, who has 11. Uh, and then when you look at him from maybe a more comprehensive standpoint, his goals above replacement, uh, through just his 18 games that he's really played in, he's fourth on the team already in total goals above replacement. And when you put it into a per-minute perspective uh, to kind of make it a little bit easier to compare to the guys who have a lot more games, he's sitting at uh, .754 goals above replacement per 60 minutes. And that's the best on the team by far. Mantha's the next best at .519. And so .754 kind of puts him among the top 40 forwards in the NHL right now. And so if he's sustaining that level of play, he's really having a significant impact. And largely his biggest impact has been on the Red Wings power play, um, where he's able to generate. And, you know, Max, you and I talked about this on the last episode. He's able to utilize that bumper. He's great on puck retrievals. And then when he shoots the puck, man, he's got a shot. Yeah, he does. And I, I, it was actually, I think, really impressive to see him get that one in the spot he wanted because he's had a few misses uh, just on his shot this season. I don't know if they're all necessarily his fault. I don't know if they're necessarily concerning. Uh, but to see him really pick a corner and hit it, uh, I think that was probably a, a big development. Yeah, and you you know, you know, and I talked about this, I think, on the last episode or maybe an episode before that. What, why is he missing high? I do wonder if that... Sometimes he's just simply trying to pick his spot a little bit too much, almost on a shot like that. And so you sometimes have to wonder if he'll if he's better served just kind of slinging it more in the general direction of an area as opposed to trying to pick the corner like that. But, man, when it goes in, it looks really good. It does. And that was – man, that's got to be in top, top five, top ten ribbing schools of the season so far. Yeah, I definitely put it up there. There haven't been that many great ones. Um, you know, obviously Anthony Mantha's opening night I think was great. And then his follow-up game after that, I think he had a couple of really nice ones. But you know, beyond that, I'm 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 all in on that Zadina goal. That was just a very nice wrist shot. Most of the others are just Philip Peronic one-timers. Yeah, yeah, basically just blowing the puck past goaltenders. Yeah, exactly. Um, should we wrap up the World Juniors? We we could talk about Dallas at some point too, but I think uh, the the result with with Canada getting the win. Me looking like a fool after pre- predicting a uh, blowout USA victory over Finland. Finland wins that one one zero, and the Americans go home in the quarters. So, uh, hat tip to you on that one for for calling that as a really tight game. But Alexi Lafreniere wins tournament MVP. I've kind of been saying that I didn't think this tournament was going to really change much in terms of the the draft stock, uh, but I'm going to amend that in a way to to, to make it. I don't think Quentin Byfield loses any ground for the pretty quiet tournament that he had. I do think Lafreniere had such a good tournament that he put a little bit of um, of space between the, the two of them in what I thought was shaping up to be a pretty close, um, you know, conversation. I think he looked so good at this tournament um, that he probably separated himself a bit. Yeah, I mean Lafreniere was absolutely out of this world, and you know. He wins tournament MVP. When he was on the ice, he was noticeable. He was the best player on on either side. Uh, And he's doing this as an 18-year-old. And yes, he is about uh, 10 months older than Byfield. This is his second time at the World Juniors. But if you're looking, you know, if NHL teams are scouting and they're saying, who's this guy that's going to be the most ready to transition to the next level as fast as possible? I think Lafreniere made a, a strong case showcasing that yeah, he's ready, his development is there, and he's already the best player among, on the ice amongst his peers. And so I think that was a, a huge statement for him, and I do think that you're absolutely right in saying that. I don't think Byfield necessarily did anything to lose ground with his play. 
This is a uh, his first tournament. He's very, very young here uh, relative to the other guys playing. But Lafreniere was just out of this world. I think it's going to do a lot for him and a lot for his draft stock. You know, I mentioned I don't think he needs to play the rest of the season. He's still the first overall pick, and I, I maintain that. He's still going to play. He's still going to go back to the queue, and he's going to light it up. Um, but, yeah, I think this was a, just an awesome showcase uh, of his talents, and he just had an excellent time. And, hey, maybe he was doing a lot of that alongside his future linemate, Joe Valeno, who didn't have a bad tournament himself. No, he didn't. And it's kind of funny that, you know, he, I think he ended up at a point per game, but I don't think anyone would tell you that, that he was as productive as he could have been in that tournament. And certainly I don't even think that was the standout aspect of his game. I think it was the, the 200 foot game, a little bit of the defense. To me, the physicality was a, a, a new Joe Valeno that I was seeing. Um, so he, he gets about a point per game, which is pretty solid and about what, what I think would have been, um, a good successful expectation for him out of this tournament. Uh, but it's not even the, the, the thing that probably makes you the most uh, intrigued if you're a Red Wings fan. Yeah, I mean, he clearly owned the Canadian coaching staff's trust. He was their leading uh, ice time getter, forwards or defensemen. He averaged 19-13 a game, uh, which led Canada. And then in that gold medal game when Canada needed to rally and then end up holding the lead the last few minutes, Valeno played more than 25 minutes in that gold medal game. I mean, that's just... We're talking Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl amount of minutes in that game. Most of any skater on either side, he's really dependent on. I think he showcased his defensive game quite well. He chipped in offensively a little bit, which is what you're looking for. Um, he really racked up the shots once he came back from the suspension uh, for that headbutt. He was able to start putting the puck on net, and I think playing with Lafreniere obviously helped him to a certain extent. But yeah, final stats, he ends up looking at six points in six games with, uh, you know, 20 minutes of ice time a night. That's what you were looking for from him. Yeah. I mean, who does he think he is? Moritz Sider playing that kind of workload? I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive for, for Valeno to, to have that kind of role in, in all situations role. I, I'm still not totally sold that he's going to be a high end producer at the next level. But this tournament went a long way to solidifying that he's going to have a, a nice career for himself in the NHL because he's proving himself to be a guy who can help you in just about every facet of the game. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I don't think this tournament should change really how you project him whatsoever, but I do think the one thing I'm picking up is he's going to be able to carve out a role. He's very coachable. Um, you know, you're getting that impression with the quotes that are talking about and coming out about him from the Hunters and, and other guys around Team Canada that he's just a guy that's going to go out there and work and he's going to carve out a role for himself and he's going to make himself uh, have an impact on the ice, whether it's on the score sheet, uh, probably not as much, but more likely defensively and playing in just a solid, well-rounded game. I still stand by the fact that I think he's going to be a third-line center with you know a little bit of offensive upside to it. Uh, which again is is a useful player on a on a playoff team and on a cup contending team. Uh, so I think it's important to just keep that perspective there. But I think he's absolutely going to carve out a role for himself. Among guys who probably didn't have the tournaments they would have liked, I'm going to give you three names, and I want you to rank which seasons you'll be following most closely the rest of the way, or which ones you're most interested in, I guess, the rest of the way. One of them is a Red Wings prospect. That's Jared McIsaac. Did not think that he looked um, all that great in the tournament. I didn't think he looked all that horrible, but, but you know, for a guy who was a returning player, you probably would have liked to see him more in control. Um, obviously, he's coming off the injury. He gets traded now to Moncton. Um, that'll be interesting, I think. The other two guys, 
Quinn Byfield, who has the quiet tournament, how does he react uh, going back to the OHL now? Is there any confidence hit? And similar question for Yaroslav Oskarov, um, the Russian goalie who ends up getting pulled in the semifinal. Uh, I don't think he got back in in the final. Which? How would you rank those in terms of uh, how closely you'll be watching most intriguing uh, post-World Junior season? I think for me the most intriguing is still going to be McIsaac because we have very limited data on him coming into the tournament. He had only gotten three games in um, with his uh, QMJHL team, the Halifax Moosehead, prior to the tournament. Comes in, has an okay tournament. Like, like you know, like you said, Max, he didn't really stand out. Uh, the Athletics' Corey Proudman kind of named him a disappointment, saying as a returning player, as a team leader, he was hoping for a little bit more from him. Didn't necessarily look awful, but also had several costly turnovers. So I really want to see what he looks like now back from this injury. And he's traded to to Moncton today in, in the QMJHL. And, you know, that's a solid move. I mean, Moncton right now is you know, third in the Q standings, whereas Halifax was 14th, Halifax was 16 and 19, and Moncton was 27 and 11 right now. So he'll get to play with a, a handful of good guys over there. Jordan Spence is a good defenseman for uh, Moncton right now, and, you know, they're also led by Jacob Pelletier, who is an excellent forward, five foot nine guy who can score, you know, 30, 40, 50 goals uh, in the QMJHL. So, I'm curious to see what he does on a better team, a more talented team, to see if he's able to find that uh, that game that made him such an up-and-comer. I think Askarov, again, he was a double underager in this tournament. It was asking a lot for him to come in and steal the show, if you will. Uh, I don't know that it was reasonable to even expect him to come in and dominate. Uh, and so I think he, what you saw here shouldn't really change it. I think him, he's going to go back and he's going to do just fine in the KHL, and I think those games are going to ultimately serve as, um, you know, more of more important for his draft stock, given that the KHL is arguably the best league uh, in the world that's not the NHL, and so I'll be really curious to see how he does over there. And then Quentin Byfield, I mean, this shouldn't really affect him whatsoever. You know, we talked about this on the last episode. Alexi Lafreniere last year, when he played the World Juniors his first year, he was about the same age as as Byfield is now, and, and Lafreniere walked away with one assist uh, after last season's uh, World Juniors. And so Byfield, similar position, similar stats, you know, had a similar role. I think he should go right back uh, to his OHL team in Sudbury and, and, and dominate the way he was before because he's got some work to do to catch Marco Rossi and some of those guys who have been able to produce while he was over with the Team Canada. But I think this is just a great experience for him. Uh, so McIsaac's really the guy I'm going to key in on. What I'll be interested in about Byfield is just, you know, last year it happened with Kirby Dock, a guy who got off to a crazy hot start. Uh, midseason he did have a little bit of a lull, and that hasn't happened so far for Byfield, but I wonder if, if kind of not being able to do the, the kinds of things he's used to doing in an international tournament will have any effect on him. I think it's just something to watch. I don't know that it's particularly consequential, so I would put that third as well. Um, and I, I think I probably ultimately agree that it's McIsaac, Askarov, and then Byfield. But I am very curious about Askarov in general um, because I think that he, he's such a wild card in terms of a guy who who could theoretically go very high. You don't hear about a lot of goalies that age playing in the KHL. 
he's fascinating to me, but I think ultimately it has to be uh, Jared McIsaac, number one, because he's already in the Red Wing system, and I think, you know, you, you can waste a lot of time uh, scouting some of those things for, for players who we won't actually end up, you know, even covering. But uh, I do think there's, there's a lot of interesting things to watch with all three of those guys there uh, post-tournament. Anything that you're watching post-tournament or any, anything else you want to add to our World Junior wrap-up? Uh, I mean, post-tournament, I'm going to... I'm going to just be watching the guys and see who really solidifies themselves as a top 10 pick uh, the rest of the way because, you know, Alexander Holtz and, and Lucas Raymond, they both had good tournaments for Sweden. There are two guys projected to potentially go in the top 10. You want to see how Anton Lindell, a guy that everyone really wanted to see for Finland but unfortunately was out due to injury, you want to see how he comes back because he should be due back uh, any day now if he's not already been back. He was supposed to be out about six weeks from Thanksgiving, from American Thanksgiving time. So he should hopefully be back any day now. Um, he's another guy that should mix in in the top ten. And then you really want to see how the other guys who got cut from Canada, um, you know, Cole Perfetti, Marco Rossi, you want to see how these guys finish out their season. And then really the other guy that we haven't talked about yet that I thought had a really solid last couple of games was Jamie Drysdale. Uh, who's another draft eligible defenseman. He's arguably the top defenseman in this, uh, this year's draft. I thought he looked really, really solid in both the gold medal game and then the game against Finland. I mean, he, he seemed to be, uh, finding his game, finding his stride, making good outlet passes. He's a guy who made play his way into the mix in the top five when maybe he was initially coming into the tournament, maybe a top 10 guy, top 15. He may play his way into that top five conversation as well. So really, those are the guys that I want to keep an eye on uh, the rest of the way. Yeah, I'm curious about Drysdale too. So he, he's a right shot D. If the Red Wings were to slip to four, would that weigh in at all to your calculation on, on whether or not he would be a worthwhile pick? To me, I don't think it's that crazy to play two guys of the same hand on the same pair. You've seen the Red Wings do it with left-handers fairly often, fairly recently, but just curious on how that would affect your calculation, if at all. Yeah, I don't know that the handedness specifically would affect uh, me drafting or me electing to draft Drysdale. I think at four, there's just too much forward talent right now, and I think the forwards have the higher likelihood of having that big impact uh, that the Red Wings really need. And, and with Cider in the system, you know, obviously you're going to need a lot more than Cider, but with Cider and Ronick right now, I at least feel reasonably confident that I've got a couple guys there. What I really need is just that elite level forward, some guy that's in the tier above Larkin and Mantha right now. And, and I think you have the ability to draft that at four because at four you're going to conceivably have the choice between uh, Tim Stutzel, Cole Perfetti, Marco Rossi, uh, you know, Anton Lindell, potentially Lucas Raymond's in there if he doesn't go at three, Alexander Holtz. I just think there's a number of forwards right now that I would still want to take ahead of Drysdale, um, even though Drysdale has demonstrated that he's arguably the best defenseman in this draft and should be in the conversation in that top five to top seven range. Very fair. I, I sometimes think that uh, maybe I get a little uh, fixated on guys who are at the top of their position or something because I, I kind of feel like if, you, if you're taking like the third best winger versus the best defenseman, how do you weigh that? I do know forwards, obviously, though, that there's more of them on a team. An elite one can really go a long way. So I just kind of wanted to see your, your calculation, your, your thoughts on how you'd approach that. Um, let's get into the Dallas game before we, we get too much farther uh, removed from it. Red Wings go up early, 1-0 with the Dylan Larkin goal, and then uh, a Red Wings game broke out and they lost 4-1. And anything that you really took away strongly from that one? 
I mean, I think at least for this one, unlike the Chicago game, the game was relatively competitive for most of it. I don't think the Wings really had a true flat line like they, they typically do in the second period. I thought they at least stayed competitive, but... You know, special teams really uh, did them in here. They give up the shorthanded goal at the end of the first period, then give up an early power play goal, and all of a sudden now you're down uh, 2-1, and then again, the game just gets gets out of hand for you. I thought the power play was a complete disaster in that game. Um, and, you know, special teams has largely been a problem for the Wings. They got a little, you know, the power play got a little bit better with Zadina uh, on that top unit. He's been able to facilitate a little bit more like we talked about. But, you know, it's just... For the Red Wings right now, they need everything to go right with the amount of injuries they have, the talent disparity between them and the rest of the NHL, um, their issues that they've had with goaltending. They need everything to go right for the better part of the game. And, you know, even in a game like the Dallas game where they're able to stay relatively competitive, the talent disparity ends up winning out and, and uh, the special teams let them down. So it's it's a different way to lose than the Chicago one, but it's still a loss at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think this is, you know, a game that the Red Wings are uh, were going to be overmatched, and they they did beat Dallas earlier in the season, but that's a team that's that's turned around quite a bit in the time since. And I don't know exactly what the expectation would have been, um, so I, I'm not very surprised by it either. I didn't really, you know, think it was a a game that left much of an impression. I, I was interested, I guess, to to take this back to the Chicago game real quick. Phillips Adina did end up getting a little bit of run with Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi um, in that game, about f- a little less than four minutes at even strength. Is that something that you think uh, they may be experimenting with? And obviously I think we've both talked about how it was, it's a, a combination we would like to see at some point to see how they play together, but is that something that you think was a, kind of a, just a passing coincidence or something that they may be tinkering with? I think there's been a handful of games this year where they've, you know, maybe gotten a run of three or four minutes with Zadina and Larkin. And I think some of it is just, hey, the game is going, the game has gotten away or the, the score has gotten away a little bit. And I'm looking for some sort of injection or infusion of offense. So I'm going to put my three best players together and, and, and see what happens. I think that's really what it's been. I think most of the situations, and I could be wrong here but because I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think most of the situations have been when the Wings were trailing, either by more than one goal or at least a goal just to uh, try and get a little bit more offense. I don't know that it should be a regular thing, though, simply because as we've talked about Zadina and as we're getting more and more data on him and we're measuring his impact and getting an understanding of what he's able to do on the ice – he seems to be a guy that is able to drive play with a lot of his metrics coming away from Larkin and Bertuzzi. And so if you're able to have guys, again, when you're fully healthy and you have Mantha and you have Athanasiu back and, uh, you know, if that does happen and you have this magical fully healthy lineup, it does seem conducive to having him on a separate line from Larkin and potentially even a separate line from Mantha given that those two guys have also demonstrated they can really carry play and drive offense. So, you know, I, I think it's fine to experiment right now, especially when you have all these injuries. I mean, hey, it really can't go any worse than that. But I think once this team is fully healthy, I'd probably be a proponent of having Zadina stay separate on that second line, maybe with Philpola and Athanasiu, and I and let Mantha go back up to that top line because I think that lets Blashell give that top line a little bit more free reign and he doesn't have to worry about breaking them up as much. Yeah, I think that's a good point. 
I think that's everything I had for the in, the in the recap section of the show. Is there anything else you wanted to get to on any of the, the topics we've discussed before we move on a little bit? No, I mean, I think the one mention is I think Trevor Daly was hurt at the end of the yep. Blackhawks game. I think, uh, Max, as you've noted, there's there's really no update yet, but... You know, potentially we'll stay tuned and see if that leads to a, a recall from Grand Rapids, depending on the severity, or if the Wings are just going to roll with what they've got up right now. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I guess the one news item, uh, Peter Laviolette fired on Monday evening, so that makes Jeff Blasio the third longest tenured coach in the league behind only John Cooper or Paul Maurice. I am curious, how high do you think he can get on that list? Has he reached the ceiling, or is there another spot or two he could climb? You know, with the way Tampa has really turned their their season around since mid-November, I don't know that you're going to see Cooper go anywhere. I think at one point it was very concerning when Tampa was sitting outside of a playoff spot and they were looking very disorganized and getting beat by teams they shouldn't get beat by. I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, Wings fans can just flash back to the last game against Tampa where Tampa basically ran circles around them. So I think John Cooper's not going anywhere. Uh, Paul Maurice, at least for this season is interesting because I think the expectations for Winnipeg with Bufflin, um, you know, deciding that he, you know, I, with this injury issue, when he's going to play, how he's going to play might be on his terms. It's a little bit tricky to figure out. And then obviously Winnipeg traded away Jacob Trouba in the off season. So, you know, expectations weren't super high for them. And, and right now they're still technically in the wild card race. Uh, you know, they're only a point back out of the wild card right now. So I don't see Paul Maurice really going anywhere given that, uh, you know, that kind of level from Winnipeg. So I don't know that Blasio really climbs this because it's, it's hard to say because at that point you're now speculating, well, when would Blasio's tenure here theoretically run out? And, and that's not really a fair question to ask because you know, even though the Wings are in the midst of a historically awful season, I think you're still hearing the right thing from the players. You're, he's not a guy that seems to have lost the locker room, and he still seems to have the backing of the front office. So at that point, we're just kind of speculating who's the first of the three to go beyond this season, which is, is tough to say. So for now, I'd wager that Blaschel doesn't move past either of those guys, but who knows what next season brings. Yep, absolutely fair. It does lead into one of the uh, listener questions if you're ready to go that route. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, and I know your answer to this already, but I don't know if the listeners do. So Stacy asks, what do you think about Igor Larionov as a possible Red Wings coach? I don't know if he's got the experience, but I keep fantasizing about how cool it would be to have him back, she writes. Uh, your thoughts on Igor Larionov? Yeah, so I can't remember if I've actually said this on an episode or strictly texted this to Max, but I am very much pro-Igor Larionov for like the last few months. I think Igor Larionov thinks about the game. Uh, very differently than the way the North American coaches do. If you haven't read it, there's a great uh, Players Tribune article that was ghostwritten for Igor Larionov. I want to say it was maybe two or three years ago, where he basically talks about the beauty of the Russian game, the beauty of the Soviet game, what it was like to go up against those Canadian teams in the Summit Series. And then he talks a lot about how players are just different. Um, the way that he grew up playing in Russia, that style was so different than what's preached by North American coaches where a lot of the coaches he made the point uh, were not elite players in their own right. And if you look across the NHL, not a lot of those guys were elite players. And so he thinks what ends up happening is 
coaches tend to tell players or coach players to play like them. And that happens all the way from the top league all the way down through the minors. And they tend to preach safe, safe, safe plays. And, you know, Larianov's philosophy or point was always, well, if you've got them at the young age and you're going to teach them the right way to play, why not teach them to play creatively, to play beautifully, to think differently, uh, and to play with the puck? And so at a bare minimum, Larianov seems like an excellent guy you want working with your younger players, so either in AHL setting, um, and maybe that's how he makes his roads into the NHL. I'm not sure what his interests are. He was a part of the uh, Russian uh, coaching staff for the World Juniors. So, you know, potentially that is of interest to him. But he's a guy that just thinks about the game differently. And I think if you're looking for someone to bring new or fresh ideas into the NHL, he's a guy that should be at the top of the list uh, for sure, just given the way he thought the game. Yeah, very fair. Matthew Bailey says, uh, is Bowie progressing? He seems to be getting better these last few games. You know, I I don't know that he is. He His point totals are there. You know, he's the second highest scoring defenseman that the Red Wings have right now. But when you go to measure his overall impact on the ice, and we can do this with either goals above replacement or a number of different metrics, but starting with goals above replacement, he is arguably, you know, one of the five, has been one of the five worst defensemen uh, this season in the NHL um, as measured by that. And part of that has to do with the fact that a lot of goals have gone against and his team hasn't necessarily scored as much for, and so his, his metrics look a lot worse. But all that being said, I don't know that he has necessarily demonstrated enough progress to where I think he's played his way into being a future of this team, given that he's a restricted free agent at the end of the year. Uh, I think right now he's a kind of a stopgap on this season. I do think I know what he's getting at, though, because I thought Bowie played maybe his best game as a Red Wing on New Year's Eve against San Jose. Um, he had an assist in that one, but he was he was really physical, I thought, um, and, and just, you know, seemed to have a lot of jump in his game. I, I think something has clicked for him offensively in terms of just deciding he's going to be one of the few defensemen who can create some offense and when the physicality's there, too. Um, that's when you kind of see, okay, maybe, maybe this is kind of the the picture that the Red Wings were, were imagining when they acquired him. I'm not sure that he's around for the long haul, uh, but I do think, and I just actually filed my midseason grades, and I gave Bowie a decent grade, I think, for that reason, that I think something has kind of clicked in terms of offensively and physical-wise. I think defense only, um, it, it hasn't been good. But I think that you've seen just in these last four or five games a little bit more uh, come to the forefront that I, I know what he's getting at, and I think it's too soon to say that because just a few games can really mislead you. I didn't think he was all that great against Chicago, for example, um, but I, I, I don't know. I think there's um, there's things you can point to, if nothing else. Yeah, and you know, a guy's going to have some decent games, and I think Bowie has had a couple of games. I think the Sharks game is a good one to point out because I think, honestly, a lot of people on the Red Wings had a had a good game that night given how bad the Sharks were playing. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's had a handful of games where he stands out and you can go, you can see what people see in him. You can see yeah. the talent. You can see the skills that he's got. But I think it's sometimes he just struggles to keep that consistency, and that's honestly what you're looking for in an NHL regular is a guy who can – maintain that consistency through and through and I think that's something I just haven't seen so even though he's had a couple of of decent games the last uh you know the last few I think uh it's really tough to say 
Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm in that mode where I was just doing those grades, and, you know, I've already filed them, so it's too late to change it. But I do think I, I kind of grade on a curve of, like, so there's progress, I think, is a factor in that too, right? And I think he, he's made progress over the course of the season, um, but not enough to the point that I, I don't think I would predict him as some guy who's going to who's gonna be around, um, you know, for, for, for much of the future. Yeah, like here's a here's a random stat, for example. So if you use um, the Evolving Hockey's expected goals for model, and we've talked about expected goals for percentage, meaning the percentage of expected goals for your team when that player is on the ice. Uh, Bowie, 25% of his games this year has had him have a 5-on-5 expected goals for percentage of less than 25%. Wow. So a quarter of his games he has actually played – where the other team is getting 75% of the expected goals when he's on the ice. Uh, and so that's mind-blowingly awful. You kind of want to be around that 50 to 55 mark, uh, 55 for those really good teams, about 50 to 52 for teams that are going to be in playoff contention. And so I'm saying 25% of his games, he's been sub-25%. Couldn't have told me that yesterday. Um, yeah, I just wanted to let you put the grades out first, Max. <laughs> That's fair. You can't say I told you so if, uh, if you do it that way, though. It's very true. Uh, all right. Next one is from, oh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Aras, I think. A-R-A-S. Uh, he says, who are some UFAs in the Philpola Nemeth shopping section? You can see the Red Wings targeting. Um, my gut instinct is to say there is something there for Nemeth, but the guy in the Philpola mold who you'd be looking at is just Philpola. You signed him to a two-year deal. Nemeth was two, but you've got more openings on D. I think your Philpola is just Philpola, right? Yeah, I think Philpola is going to just be Philpola because when you look at the forwards, even though there's a lot of guys that are up for contract, I suspect most of those guys are back uh, next year. There's maybe a couple of guys where decisions are going to be made, whether it's it's Perlini, it's Ernie, um, it's, it's Christopher N. Those are maybe the three where you're talking about potentially replacing. Um, and then who knows what the wings decide to do ultimately with Athens U. But there's not necessarily going to be that top nine opening in my mind because the wings are more likely to elevate either Michael Rasmussen or, uh, Joe Valeno depending on their seasons and how they finish out. I think it's more likely one of those guys actually comes up than the wings actually go shopping for another Philpola-esque uh, forward. So I definitely think there are openings on D for, you know, uh, the wings to go out and maybe make a splash because they are going to have a lot of openings. I don't know that everybody that they're hoping for right now is going to be ready. Uh, so there's potentially a, a couple of spots there to fill. Yep, I agree. And I think, I think that guy will be Rasmussen that'll come up and fill the, the center job there. Uh, and then defense, it's a little more interesting. I mean, that, that's something where we've talked about like a Trevor Van Riemsdyk type, uh, as a potential, Kind of stopgap defenseman in there. Yeah, I mean, Trevor Van Riemsdyk is a guy that makes a, a whole lot of sense for the Wings. He's going to likely be a low-cost guy. Joel Edmondson's another guy right now in Carolina who would likely be a low-cost guy. And when I'm saying low-cost, I'm kind of thinking under $3 million, uh in terms of average annual value. I think he's a guy that uh, you'd be able to get some, you know, a year or two out of if you really wanted to. Um, so those guys kind of make sense unless the Wings end up going the trade route. I think those would be fine stopgaps, but... Honestly, where they're going to make the bigger free agent splash is goaltending. Yes, and that is a a whole other uh, conversation. I do, though, want to note here, I did a story earlier this week about 
kind of evaluating Iserman's early moves as GMs. And one of the things that was in that story that I didn't know before, I don't know if this was more broadly known publicly, but the Red Wings really went into last season with kind of defined parameters for what they were going to explore uh, contract-wise in the offseason. I think maybe that's one of those things that you kind of presume every team is operating with some kind of um, boundaries there, but I, I had never heard it said so clearly before that you know they, they went in knowing that they weren't going to do anything really uh, that wasn't going to make long-term sense. I don't, I don't, I'll have to find the exact quote, what it was from, from Jeff Blaschel, but basically I, I think that's interesting that that's a way that they went into last season operating. I have to imagine whatever they did last season, those will be the same parameters coming into this year. So I would assume that means two or three year deals with fairly low dollar, uh, almost no matter what. Yeah, I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense for the way an organization should be run. I mean, if you think about how successful businesses are run with their strategic plans, whether it's a three-year plan, a five-year plan, every move that's made is all being executed uh, based on the parameters of that plan. And so I would hope that there is a similar mindset kind of across, all right, this is year one of a five-year strategic plan. These are the parameters that we're going to consider for the moves that we need to make right now, and this is what we're going to end up doing. And you go out and you execute it. And I think that's why, you know, in your story, Max, I think you noted this perfectly. On July 1, Eisenman's done shopping because he's gone out, he's executed what needed to be done as a part of that plan, and he's done. There's nothing left for him to really do or explore. And so I think that's a, a sign that the team at least has a vision, uh, a somewhat clear vision of what they want to achieve and when they think they're going to achieve it. Yep. And then goalie-wise, just it wasn't part of the question, but I guess we can we can do a little bit there. Uh, we've got a little extra time on this show. To me, the guys who kind of make sense are in the mold of uh, Leonard, I think, is probably going to want something longer term. But based on the market form last year, maybe you can get lucky and get something two, three years with him. Uh, I think Jacob Markstrom's going to get paid, so I wouldn't count on that. Thomas Grice is up there in age, but he might be, for that reason, maybe in the market for something. Same deal with uh, Hudobin from Dallas, and then I think Pavel Frenso, uh in Colorado are some names to watch. Anyone that I didn't say that you think would be uh, a name worth watching? The only other guy I'm paying attention to is is potentially Cam Talbot, and mm. then because, uh, you know, he's, again, a, a guy who would potentially take a one- or two-year deal and, and come get you through the season, which is all the Wings are really looking for, unless they, they choose to address their goaltending needs via trade. Uh, I think there was an interesting development today, on today being Monday, uh, where the Rangers have actually brought up Shesterkin from the AHL uh, to actually start, and so now they've got their three goalies and, Maybe that means a move for Alexander Georgiev is is on the radar or on the horizon. So he's a guy that you and I have talked about as a potential target for the Wings. Um, I think he's had a, a decent season behind a bad Rangers defense. He's 24 years old. So he's a guy that could potentially be in, in the mix for the Wings if they're looking for a long-term goaltender. Yeah, you'd have to kind of think, you know, the Red Wings defense is very bad too. So if, if he's putting up at age 23 a 909 save percentage uh, behind a defense that is, you know, as bad as the Red Wings, um, I think that's in the neighborhood of what Jonathan Bernier has done as well. So, uh, a little north even. So that, that would certainly, um, tend toward being an upgrade, especially if you can make the defense better in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so he's a guy that makes a lot of sense if you're able to, to get him in a deal. Um, and want to solidify your your goaltending position for the near future. Yep. 
okay, this one I'm sure will we'll answer a variety of a hundred more times between now and late June. If the Red Wings fall to three or four in the draft, who would you take right now? Oh, that's fun. Um, three. I'm gonna go a little off the board, maybe, and take Tim Stutzel from mm-hmm. Germany. I think he just had a phenomenal uh, World Juniors. I think he thinks the game really well. What he's doing in the in the top German men's league is unprecedented. Um, they've not had an 18 year old kid come in and dominate the way that he's dominated right now. I mean, he's playing at almost a point per game. Uh, pace in, in the DEL right now. And so he's a guy that just seems like uh, his biggest asset is his skating and his IQ. And I think he can make a huge, huge difference um, for the wings. He's not a center. He is a winger. Um, can play a little bit of center, but is primarily going to play winger. And either way, I think he's a guy that I take at three. At four, assuming that Stutzel is gone, um, you know, I think Lucas Raymond makes a lot of sense here. I mean, coming into the season, some people had him as second overall. Some people still technically have him as second overall. I think he thinks the game really well. I would avoid being misled by his stats in the, in the SHL too much as the guy's averaging maybe 10 minutes a night right now and not seeing a whole lot of top tier power play time. And so, uh, his counting stats are going to look a little bit worse, but for those, uh, scouts who measure the stats that we like to quote here, the Corsi 4 percentage, the expected goals 4 percentage. Raymond is towards the top of the league in those, and so he's a guy that seems like he can make a, a huge difference. And then the, the off-the-radar guy is Marco Rossi. Um, his scoring right now in the OHL is, you know, next level. I mean, really, we're talking about he's scoring at a level higher than Mitch Marner did in his draft season, and really right now he's slotting only behind... Connor McDavid, when we're talking about highest point per game uh, totals for an OHL draft eligible player, Rossi is on the older side of this draft class. He is on the smaller side for this draft class. He is a winger and a center, so you know we'll see what he ends up playing in the NHL. But his scoring right now is just off the charts. Always a good sign when you can pick five guys at two spots. You know, I'm just saying, like <laughs> right now. It's not a bad spot to even fall to four. Like, I know the Wings are most likely going to end up at four, but it could end up being a 2017 draft where the best player or the second best player you're taking, I shouldn't say best because Lafreniere is going to be that, but potentially the second best player in the draft is coming from that four spot. The only guy I would add to that mix, I, I would consider Jamie Drysdale there. I, I think that uh, there's a lot of great players you mentioned. Raymond Holtz, obviously, Tim Stutzler. Um, those would kind of be the, the cream of the crop for me, but I, I wouldn't count out uh, Jamie Drysdale there either because I think if you can get that uh, great skating power play QB type, um, that's one of the biggest pieces that the Red Wings still need. Uh, and I, I wouldn't rule it out at four. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think you could, if you just picked of the skaters in the top 10 right now, I don't think you could make a huge mistake taking any of those guys at four, unless you take Askarov. I am team anti-Askarov. Take uh, Perfetti over Askarov? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, last question comes from Chris. He says, Mo Sider, Detroit when? I'm going to say you're going to see him after the trade deadline. Okay. Uh, I think you're going to see the Wings basically you know, make them AHO playoff eligible if the Griffins find a way to turn around their season. Uh, and then I think you see him up after that because he needs to play in the NHL. 
I've, I've been a big proponent. You've been a big proponent. You need to burn his entry-level contract this year. This guy is a stud. He's going to be an NHL player. He's going to be a top-four defenseman for the Red Wings. I think you get him up, see what he can do, get him 10 games, and burn the contract. I think you see him at some point this year, but uh, I'm not sure exactly when. I, I, I would guess it's after the trade deadline, but then again, um, the Griffins last year had a had a pretty rough close to the season. They right now are not in playoff position. I don't know if 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 they're pushing back for a playoff spot, uh, are they going to want to kind of disrupt his flow with the team that he's eventually? Uh, the idea would be to to be on a playoff team with. Um, that's I think something to monitor in, in the whole factor as well. But I think with how well he's performed so far. Um, he's earned at least a, a handful of games, and obviously you and I both think that number should be at least 10 or maybe just 10 or whatever um, games in Detroit this season. Yeah, I mean, even if you play him just 10, send him right back to Grand Rapids. That's totally fine, but just make sure the number is 10. Yeah, fair enough. All right, that's everything we got. Uh, the Red Wings are back at it against the Montreal Canadiens on Tuesday. I think we'll talk to you again, though, uh, before any other games happen. Is there anything else I'm missing there? No, I think that's basically it. You know, so we'll see how the the Canadians look. Thanks as always for listening. Thanks for being patient when uh, our our unnamed podcast member forgot uh, the microphone. But uh, we'll, we'll try not to mess that up again next time. Uh, talk to you in middle of the week. 